say welcome to all of you who are here with us in the room this morning. Also want to welcome our online church family who may be joining us via live stream this morning. Uh, if you're new, we haven't had a chance to meet yet. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life, and we are on the front end of a brand new message series that we just launched two weeks ago. Last week, we hit pause to hear from uh, Pastor Brody Medford, who's getting ready to plant a church in Waynesville, North Carolina, and so we're partnering with that church plant. So you guys heard from him last week, and this week, we're going to be back in our brand new series called We Believe, Exploring the Apostles' Creed. So if you missed two weeks ago, let me just kind of give you a, a quick refresher uh, on the series, and then we'll kind of dive into our text this morning. The Apostles' Creed, uh, as far as I can tell, is one of, if not the oldest creeds uh, that the church has used dating back to the second century. All right, so we're talking Christians have been reciting this creed together for like 1,800 plus, uh, close to 1,900 years. One of the oldest creeds in church history. The Apostles' Creed begins in Genesis 1-1 with creation, and then it ends in the book of Revelation with the return of Jesus and eternal life, right? So it's this beautiful summary of the entire gospel narrative. What the creed does is it takes the million-word Bible, distills it down to a 100-word creed that even a small child can memorize and recite. And so if you're, listen, if you're a part of our church family, if you plan to be with us throughout this series over the course of the next eight or ten weeks, I just want to issue you a personal challenge. Here, here's the personal challenge. I, I, would, I would like to challenge you to memorize the creed with me over the course of the next eight or ten weeks. And so we, just like we did last time, we're going to recite the creed together um, out loud at the end of each service through this series. But my guess is it's going to take a little bit more legwork for you to memorize the entire creed. And so let me encourage you, uh, go home with your spouse, maybe on Friday nights or whenever you have some time, and just kind of break it into three or four chunks, memorize it together. If you have kids, make it a part of your family discipleship uh, weekly or whatever it is, whatever your pattern is at home. And it'd be awesome if we kind of exited this series together and we were all just able to recite this from heart. So that's kind of the hope, that's kind of the goal, that would be a challenge for you. Now, uh, I think it's helpful for us to know that in the early church, the creed was really used for three purposes. And I think it's just as useful for us today for these three purposes. But it, it was used primarily as discipleship curriculum, right? So, so 1900 years ago, right, the church didn't have christianbooks.com to go to or, or lifeway.com to go to or, 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 or Beth Moore Bible studies or anything like that, right? We didn't have any, any of that stuff. And so what happened is they developed these creeds so that when someone came to faith in Jesus, they could give them the essentials of the faith, right? So somebody comes to faith in Jesus, they're like, yes, I believe. I want to follow Jesus. What does that mean? What am I signing up for? Like, what do I believe now? What, what is it that we collectively believe about, the, about God, about the world around us, about how we should interact with the world around us? So the, the creed really functioned as the primary discipleship curriculum of the early church. I think we, we should probably think about going back to that. It also functioned as an evangelism tool, right? And so you can just imagine maybe being in the Roman Empire 1,900 years ago. There's this brand new thing called Christianity. It's all based on this dude, uh, Jesus, who was crucified uh, by the Roman government. Now all of a sudden, this thing is exploding like wildfire. There's Christians popping up all over the place. And you, so you, you, you just kind of imagine the conversations like, man, so, what, so you're a Christian now? Like, what, what does that mean? Like, what's that about? What do you believe? 
And the Christians memorize this creed. They can tell you, let me tell you exactly what I believe. And they can just kind of go through it from Genesis to Revelation in just a short 100-word creed and explain really the entire worldview of the Christian belief system. So it was used as an evangelism tool. And then lastly, it was used as a guardrail against false teaching. Now, that was important 2,000 years ago as we had uh, groups like the Gnostics kind of pop up and they were preaching certain heresies. That's just as important in our day as well. Like We may not have the Gnostics now, but we got the prosperity gospel preachers. We got all kinds of false gospels out there. And the creed gives us guardrails, right, to say this is what we believe. As orthodox, historic Christians, there's all kinds of stuff out there that people are saying that we ought to believe. This is historically what we believe. This is what we hold to. These are the, these are the close-handed issues, right? These are the fundamentals of the faith. The creed is arguably the greatest summary of who God is, who we are, and where our hope lies. Now, I said this two weeks ago. I want to say it again because I know all of you weren't here two weeks ago. If you're here and you're thinking, gosh, man, because we hear this a lot from, from, from newer folks at New Life. Gosh, man, we, we, we came here. We started coming to New Life because you guys actually teach the Bible. And now here you are, you're going off script, you're not teaching the Bible, there's some wacky creed from 1,800 years ago, now you're preaching, and the next thing we know you're going to be baptizing pine cones and drinking Kool-Aid, and, and you know, we're just going to be a bona fide cult. If, that, if that's kind of where, where your, your uh, red flags, your alarms are going off right now, let me, let me just kind of put your mind at ease. Uh, we are not going to be preaching the creed this series. Okay, that, that's not what we're doing. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be taking the foundational passages in the Bible that gave birth to the creed, and I'm going to be preaching those passages, right? So we're, we're still in the Bible. We're still preaching the Bible. None, none of that ha- has changed. We're, we're not going off the, the deep end um, and, and becoming a cult. So just want to make that clear uh, right out of the gate. Now, last time, two weeks ago, we started with just the first two words of the creed. We, so we spent the whole message talking about the first two words, which are, you guys remember, I, I believe, right? And so we talked the whole time about what, what does it mean as a Christian from a Christian worldview, to say those two words, I believe. Like when we recite the creed together, like we're going to do in like 30 minutes, what does it mean when we say, I believe, over and over again, I believe, I believe? And so we talked about the fact that as Christians, when we say those two words, when we say, I believe, that is more than simple intellectual belief or intellectual assent, right? James, the half brother of Jesus, in a book of the Bible that he wrote in the New Testament, he actually says that the demons believe and they tremble. Right? So, so intellectual assent does not equal saving faith. Right? The demons believe in Scripture. The demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They, they believe all of those things intellectually. Right? So saving faith, believing in something deeply, is more than just uh, words that we utter or even an intellectual belief. Belief, I would argue, is, is knowledge that sinks from the brain to the heart. It sinks from the brain to the heart, and it sinks so deeply into our heart that it actually changes our actions. Right? It affects the way that we live our lives, the decisions that we make, the way that we interact with the world around us. That's why the creed says, I believe, not I know. Now that, that's intentional by the architects of the creed. I believe, not I know. Right? Belief, I would argue this is my definition, belief is knowledge on fire. Belief is knowledge on fire. It's something that seeks so deeply into our bones, into our souls, that it, it makes us move and change. It affects the way that we act and we live. Now today we're going to tackle together the first article, the first full sentence of the Apostles' Creed. It will be on the screens for you. I invite you to say this with me right now. It says this, 
I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Eleven words, jam-packed with so much exciting, and I would even argue potentially life-changing truth. I'm excited to dive in uh, with you this morning. Let's pause just for a moment ask God to be with us, to help us as we uh, unpack his word together. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we do come to you and we are so grateful that you have given us uh, your word, the Holy Bible, these scriptures, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by men, that are just as active and alive for us today as believers in 2022. We thank you that you're a God who speaks, that you have spoken we're, thank, we're thankful, God, that you're a God that continues to speak, that you continue to speak to us, even today through your Holy Spirit that indwells uh, those of us who believe in your Son, Jesus. And so we ask you now, God, that you would be present, that you would open our minds so that we could understand these ancient truths in your word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be here. We pray that you'd be active in this room. We pray that you'd be active in the living room of everybody that's watching uh, online, God, that you would uh, just speak to our hearts, that you would change us for your name's sake and for your glory. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want to start with a question this morning. What pops into your head? What's the first thing that you think of when I say the word God? So what, what just, just kind of, you don't have to answer out loud, but what, what came into your mind when I said that one simple word, God? I'm going to guess for some of you what you pictured in your mind or the first thing that you thought of was, was Jesus. And I would say, man, if that's you, if that's what you thought of, that's a great, that's a great instinct. Uh, but I, I would guess there probably are, are others here who pictured, like I did for so long as, as a kid and teenager, an old man. Old man with a big white beard, maybe on a rocking chair in heaven, maybe, maybe with a scowl on his face for you independent Baptist background folks. Right? Just, kind of, just kind of the angry, angry God, just looking for somebody to bust up. Now, for, for some of you, the word God actually brings a smile to your face. And, and if that's you, praise God. Right? This, I think this message will be easier for you this morning. But I, I know in a room this size, with as many people as we have watching online every week, there are undoubtedly no small number of you who that's not what comes to your mind. That's not the feeling you get when you hear the word God. There are many of you, no doubt, when you hear the word God, it, it maybe stokes a little bit of anxiety in your heart. Maybe, maybe even surfaces some, some fear in your mind, feelings of, of guilt, shame, perhaps even inadequacy. And, and what I want to drive home this morning is, is this. What you think about God will shape the entire course of your life. Let me say that again. What you think about God will shape the entire course of your life. A.W. A. Tozer, a famous uh, a pastor from another era, uh, says this. This will be on the screens for you. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I could not agree more. So here, here's the game plan. For the next uh, 30 minutes or so, what we're going to do is we're going to look at who God is in, in three distinct spheres, as, as given in that first line that we just read in the Apostles' Creed. So we're going to look at God as Father, we're going to look at God as Almighty, and then we're going to look at the third uh, sphere as God as the creator of all. So here's the big idea. If you're a note taker, here's the whole shebang right here on the front end for you. God is breathtakingly personal. He's unimaginably powerful, and he is the exquisite designer. All right, so that's, that's the outline of the whole 
sermon this morning. Now, when we start the creed by saying the words, I believe in God, I mentioned this two weeks ago, I think it bears repeating. When, when we say that as Christians, that I believe in God, we are not saying that we believe in a general God in the way that, that 90 plus percent of the people in the world would say, yeah, if you asked them, they'd say, yeah, I believe in a God. I believe in a higher power. That's not what Christians are saying when we say we believe in God. We're not saying we believe in a hazy concept of God or a distant view of God or some higher universal power. As Christians, when we say those words, I believe in God, we are saying that we believe in a very specific God. We're saying that we believe in the God of the Bible. We believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God revealed in the God-man, Jesus Christ, in the Gospels. We are saying we believe in a very specific, very real, very knowable, very personal God. He is everything that all other gods are not. The Bible teaches us that, that God is a God who speaks to us, right? He has spoken through his word. He continues to speak to, to us through his Holy Spirit. When we pray to him, the scriptures tell us he's a God who hears the prayers of his sons and his daughters. He then acts on our prayers. It's this idea of a dynamic relationship. There is no other God like this God. He is breathtakingly personal. So much so that the gospel writers seem to indicate that we must relate to him first as father. You'll notice in the first line of the creed, that's the one that the, the architects of the creed begin with. As father first, right? Before we address him as almighty, before we see him as creator of all, we know him personally if we're in Christ as Father. So if you have your Bible this morning, let me invite you to go to the New Testament book of 1 John, little book in your New Testament, 1 John chapter 3. I apologize in advance. We are going to be moving around a lot today. That's uh, not typical for us. We typically just kind of anchor down in one passage, break it apart, digest it. Uh, but in this series, we're, we're going to have to bounce around a little more. Most of these, in fact, I think all of them will be on the screens for you if you don't have a copy of God's Word. But this is 1 John 3. This is the Apostle John writing, one of the closest friends of Jesus. And John writes this, See what great love the Father... There's that word, there's that concept. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. It's a beautiful promise. We should, we should see God, the Almighty, the creator of all that is. Primarily, we come to him as, as Father, as our, as our heavenly dad. There's this idea of intimate communion, of relationship with the creator. It's amazing. In fact, there's this really cool story in Matthew chapter 6. The disciples come to Jesus. Uh, they've seen that he's this powerful prayer warrior, right? He's constantly up before uh, the, the, the sun comes up, and he's out in wilderness, and he's communing with his fa father, and he's got this really powerful uh, prayer life. And so his disciples come to Jesus, and they go, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? Like, like we see that you've got this powerful connection, this incredible prayer life with, with the Father. Would you teach us how to pray? And the very first thing that Jesus tells them to pray is our what? Our Father. Not, not Almighty Creator, not, 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 not the, the most powerful being in, in, in the universe, none of that. He says the first thing he tells them to pray is our Father who is in heaven. 
Now, this is stunning, right? Jesus, the second person of the Trinitarian God, the very Son of God, says to the disciples of Jesus, call him Dad. When you talk to him, you come to him as your heavenly dad. Listen to what, uh, to what John has to say in John chapter 1, also on the screen for you, he says this, John wrote this, but to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God, who were born not of, not of blood, nor, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, children of God. He is our father if we are in Christ. And then maybe one of my favorite, Galatians chapter 4, starting at verse 4, the Apostle Paul writes this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, we just sang that, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons, God has sent his, the spirit of the son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. How incredible is that? That God sent his son to make us sons and daughters. Listen, y'all, we, we can now approach the God of the universe, the one who spoke the galaxies into existence as our loving heavenly father, our heavenly dad. So let me just ask you a question for personal reflection. Is that how you view and approach God on a daily basis? Is that how you see God? Is that how you picture him when you come to him in prayer? And the reason I ask that is because my, my suspicion is that many of you here watching online see God even today as some sort of like distant, disinterested deity, right? Or, or even worse, as an angry God, just kind of pacing the outskirts of heaven with a divine baseball bat in his hand, waiting for you to mess up so he can just like work you over. And if that's you, I want, to, I want to challenge you this morning to begin, even today, to begin to fundamentally shift the way you see God because you, how you see God will absolutely influence the way that you interact with him. Thomas Watson, a famous Puritan writer, had this to say, be on the screens for you. He says, see the amazing goodness of God, that he is pleased to enter into this sweet relation of a father God needed not to adopt us. He did not lack a son, but we lacked a father. God showed power in being our maker, but mercy in being our father. When we were enemies and our hearts stood out as garrisons against God, that he should conquer our stubbornness and of enemies make us children and write his name and put his image upon us and bestow a kingdom of glory, what a miracle of mercy this is. And that it is, friend. I don't know if you knew this or not, but, but God is not an angry old grandpa in the sky. In fact, God, God is not old at all. Now, most of us tend to think of God as old because he's eternal, but old and eternal are not the same things, right? Because we know that God exists outside of the time-space continuum. This is highlighted beautiful, beautifully by G.K. Chesterton. Uh, I've shared this quote before. It's one of my favorites. This will also be on the, on the screens for you. Chesterton writes this of God. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. 
Moms and dads, you know exactly what he's talking about, right? I had this experience in my house all the time. We're like, kids, I can't, man, I can't spin you around. One more time, I'm going to throw up or pass out or have a heart attack or maybe all three, right? For grown-ups, for grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. Do you know this God? Do you know him personally, actively, as Father, as breathtakingly personal? Y'all listen, not an idea in your head, not an intellectual construct in your mind. Do you know him the way a small child knows her loving father who's crazy about her? I heard this uh, illustration recently that I think is super helpful for us here of a, of a soldier. So imagine back in the days where, where kings ruled kingdoms. Imagine there was a soldier who uh, goes into the king's chambers at 3 o'clock in the morning and wakes the king up and says, King, I would like to request a cup of water. Like that, that soldier is probably not going to see the light of day. Now imagine a, a palace cook or the groundskeeper. Imagine that those people were to come into the king's chambers in the middle of the night and request a hug because they just had a nightmare. It's not going to go well for them. Who's the only person who can enter the king's chambers at 3 a.m. for a cup of water or a hug in the middle of the night? His kids. That's right. His kids are the only one who can do that. And I got a beautiful illustration of this. Uh, just this past week, my son, 10-year-old, uh, comes in my room 3 o'clock in the morning, and, uh, and, and he's freaking out, and he's tapping me on the shoulder, and I, and I was like, hey, buddy, what's wrong? And he's like, Dad, I can't feel my arm. And he's, he's just like in, in a panic, and I guess he had slept on it, and he woke up. Have you ever had those times where, where you're just like a dead arm? Like you can't, it's just like, what, what's going on? And I've, I've, I've panicked a few times as an adult. And um, he was like, he was like, Dad, I couldn't feel my arm. I could touch it, and I could feel an arm there, but I couldn't feel it. He's like, I figured one of my sisters climbed into bed with me, and I was touching her arm. And so he was like totally just wigged out about this whole thing. And I'm like, dude, it's okay. Your arm just fell asleep. Why don't you just wiggle it out? You're going to get some blood flow in it. You're going to be fine. So I reassured him, and I, and I sent him to back, back to bed, and he was totally fine. Now, now, he can do that. Now, if you climb in my bed at 3 o'clock in the morning and whisper that you can't feel your arm, like... I'm calling the police, right? <laughs> you can't do that, but my kids can. Whenever they want, whenever they need to. Why? Because while I love you, I even like most of you, I'm crazy about my kids. I'm crazy about my kids. I, I delight in my three kids. I, they'll tell you, ask them, I spontaneously break into song about my kids to my kids. Drives them crazy. It embarrasses them, which is why I love doing it even more. I can't sing worth a little. I can't help myself. I love them so. I'm crazy about my kids. Let me ask you, friend, do you see God as your father in that light? Do you see God exalting, delighting in you? As a beloved son, as an adopted, chosen daughter in Christ. And I just want to say, if you're here and you're in Christ this morning, you ought to. You ought to see God that way. 
You have to come to God every single day of your life in that way. I would even argue, argue that if you're in Christ and you don't see God that way, you need to repent of that. You need to turn from seeing God in a false light. And if that's hard for you, ask the Holy Spirit to help you. Just pray a prayer like, like, like Holy Spirit, I, I'm struggling to see God as this, this loving Heavenly Father like that. I want to see Him like that. I, I want to interact with Him that way. Holy Spirit, please, please open my heart to be able to interact with the Father in this way. Ask Him to help you in this way. Now, again, here, here's what I know in a, in a room this size with folks watching online, the whole nine yards, there, there's no small number of you here and watching who had absolutely God-awful earthly biological dads. And I know from talking to many of you that this concept, especially the concept of God as loving father, is incredibly difficult for you. Because like it or not, our earthly fathers shape the lens through which we see our heavenly father. So, so you just need to know this about yourself. If, if your earthly dad abused you, if your biological dad abandoned you or wounded you in some sort of deep way, let, let me just let me say this to you. Your heavenly father is everything that your earthly dad never was. He is everything that you ever dreamed of or hoped for in a dad. He is all of that and unimaginably more. Now, let, let me just pause here for a moment. I want to speak to, to parents in the room. Generally, I want to speak to dads in the room, specifically just, just for a moment. Listen, th there, is, there is no one in your child's life that will shape the way that they view God for the rest of their lives and interact with God for the rest of their lives more than you will. Now, that should absolutely send a shiver up and down your spine. Moms and dads, specifically dads, you are literally shaping the spiritual future of your kids' lives right now, whether they're two years old or 17 years old. So if I might, let, let, me, let me just encourage you, mom and dad, follower of Jesus, love your kids well. Point them to Jesus consistently. When you screw up, and you will screw it up as I screw it up, listen, apologize. Ask for their forgiveness. And listen, I just feel compelled to say this to, to moms and dads especially. Sometimes loving your kids well means saying no and being willing to face the blowback that comes from that. Sometimes loving your kids well includes loving discipline. And through it all, and through it all, we keep pointing their hearts to Jesus. We keep bathing them in prayer. We engulf them in unconditional love. Listen, my kids can absolutely disappoint me, but they know they can never decrease my love for them, ever, not ever. There's nothing they can do to decrease my love for them. Make sure your kids know that. You are literally shaping their future relationship with God. So God is breathtakingly personal. We are to come to him as a loving father, but the second aspect that we see in the first line of the creed about God is that he is, number two, unimaginably powerful. Right? That's the second attribute we see clearly right in the first line of the creed. When the creed says, I believe in God the Father, the next word is almighty. God the Father almighty. Now what the architects of the, the Apostles' Creed are saying in that is that God is limited by nothing. He lacks nothing. His power is unsearchable and unquenchable. There is nothing and no one God's arm cannot reach. 
Friend, there's no circumstance that you may be walking through right now that God cannot redeem and restore and turning it, turn it into something good for his namesake and his glory. Nothing is impossible for God. Nothing. Now, I would imagine if you're here and you claim to be a Christian, most of us here would articulate that truth. We would affirm that truth. We would say, yes, we believe that God is sovereign. Yes, we believe that God is all-powerful. But I just want to say to you this morning that, that I think a lot of us might say that with our mouths, but the real litmus test of belief is do we live like we believe that truth? Because if you really believe God is almighty, that nothing is impossible for him, we wouldn't play it so safe in our spiritual lives, would we? We would risk more, wouldn't we? We would be bold more often in how we share our faith and who we share our faith with. I think if we really believed that, we would pray with more expectation for God to answer and show up in miraculous and powerful ways. If we really believe that, I think we would live with a sense of, of, of anticipation that is rarely seen in the church in America today. I think we would live if we really believed that God was all-powerful and all-sufficient with a sense of hope that seems to be uh, waning even among Christians today. I want you to listen to the psalmist in Psalm 147. He writes this, He, that is God, determines the number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. One of my favorite illustrations uh, about God's power from the scriptures it comes from uh, Genesis chapter 17. Many of you are familiar with that story, one of the most famous ones in the Old Testament. Uh, God shows up to have a chat with, with an old man and an old woman named Abraham and Sarah. Right? Abraham's 99, Sarah's 90, and God begins that conversation in Genesis 17 like this. He goes, I am, in Hebrew, El Shaddai. Literally, in Hebrew, I am God Almighty. Now, this is the first time in Scripture that he refers to himself by this name, El Shaddai, God Almighty. And he says to this 99-year-old dude and this 90-year-old woman, he says, listen, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a son. In fact, your descendants are going to, to out outnumber the stars in the sky. And they both hear this, and you know what their response is to this incredible promise. Or like, God, thank you. We believe by faith that you're going to accomplish this. Thank you, Lord. No, that's not what they do at all. They both laugh, the scripture tells us. They, bo they both hear this and they're like, God, that's, that's cute, bro, but we're pushing 100, man. I don't know if you know much about biology, but it's been a few years. It's been a few years. We're not having a baby, God. I, I mean, I don't know what you're talking about, but you're not having a baby. And God, God's like, man, you don't, know, you don't know who you're talking to, do you? I speak galaxies into existence. I breathe out and stars are scattered across the universe. I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. And you will bear a son because I said you would bear a son. And you know what happens next, right? Abraham and Sarah book a romantic Airbnb in the Caribbean, honeymoon, second honeymoon. Nine months later, surprise, Isaac shows up. Why? Because for God, nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible for God. Uh, Ephesians 3, the Apostle Paul writes this, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to whose power? His power. Not my power, not self-discovery, not, not what our culture says today. Just look into yourself and, and live your truth. None of that garbage. According to his power that is at work within us. 
To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Jesus himself, Mark chapter 10, says this. Jesus looked at them, his disciples, and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. He is El Shaddai. He is God, the Almighty One. Christian, God, your Father, is unimaginably powerful. Do you believe that? Do you live in light of that truth? Does your life truly reflect that belief? So to recap where we've been so far, God number one is, he's breathtakingly personal. He's like, he is our heavenly father. He's our heavenly dad. We ought to interact with him in that way. Number two, he's not just breathtakingly personal. He is unimaginably powerful. He is more powerful than your mind could ever even imagine or fathom. He is El Shaddai. He is the Almighty One. And finally, the the third, the last attribute of God we're going to look at this morning is that He is the exquisite designer. He is the creator of all that is. From His power flows the act and miracle of creation. I want you to look on the screens. The very first verse, the very first chapter of the very first book in the Bible, many of you probably quote this by memory, says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is so powerful that he speaks worlds into existence. He breathes into dust and brings forth life. This is who God is. This is what he does. And this theme of God as creator jumps off of the pages all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament alike. Uh, In Acts chapter 17, there's this really incredible exchange where uh, the Apostle Paul gets invited to the Areopagus and he's speaking to all these like brilliant philosophers of the day. They're all pagans, they're all poly, polytheists, right? They believe in thousands of gods. And, and so he comes talking about Jesus. They're like, hey, Paul, come, come to this Areopagus. We want to hear what you're saying about this Jesus cat. And so I just want to read you some of this exchange uh, in Acts 17. This will be on the screens for you. Uh, and, and Paul is saying this, he's preaching this. He says this Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious or you are very, or you are very spiritual. And so scholars tell us Paul actually begins the, the sermon by complimenting all these pagan philosophers. I think there's probably something for us to learn there in, uh, in our day and age as we interact with the, the culture around us. He begins by complimenting them. Verse 23, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. And so when Paul rolls into Athens, he just he's inundated by all these idols that are just all over the thousands of idols. They all have an inscription to different gods. Right? And there's actually this one that says to the unknown God, just in case they missed one. Right? And that God shows up and he's like, where's my idol? Right there, bro. We got you covered. So they had their bases covered. And Paul's like, man, I saw that idol that says to an unknown God. Then he says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So the apostle Paul's like, hey, listen, guys, y'all got all these idols You even got one that says to the unknown God, let me introduce you to the one true living God, the one who created everything that is. Continues Revelation 
chapter 4, verse 11, says this, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You may be thinking, well, Chris, why, why is this important, man? Like, I get the father thing. Like, that makes sense to me. I get the powerful thing. That kind of makes sense. But why all this stuff about God being the creator of all that is? Here's, let me tell you why that's important. We live in a time and space culturally where we have really, as a culture, done our darndest to kind of explain away the need for God, haven't we? I mean, many, maybe even most in our culture today would claim that that through science or through the theory of evolution or through uh, the great enlightenment period, that there's really no longer a need for God. In fact, many would argue that it's only the weak that have a need for God, the emotionally weak, the intellectually weak. It's kind of a crutch for weak people. And yet, guys, here's what we observe on a global scale. Humanity is becoming more religious, not less. Did you know that? More religious, not less. Rebecca McLaughlin uh, wrote a book called Confronting Christianity. Our our staff read through that last year. I would commend it to you. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, again, the title is Confronting Christianity. But in one of her chapters in that book, she she really kind of looks at the stats and the projections and global uh, growth and all these kinds of things. And her conclusion is this. The world is growing more religious or more spiritual, not less. It's amazing, isn't it? In 1882... Uh, Frederick Nietzsche, a German atheistic philosopher, famous dude, uh, once had a very famous quote, and he said, God is dead. You guys probably read that at some point in time. In fact, let me read you the, the, uh, the full quote. He says this, uh, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. Now, I think Nietzsche would be greatly surprised if he were alive today to learn that anthropologists are projecting that the global population makeup by 2050, that the percentage of people that are religious is going to increase, not decrease. Again, the opposite of everything that secular humanistic thinkers and philosophers have been saying for the last two centuries is beginning to happen in a post-enlightenment world. How is that possible? In fact, only in the West, which is, by the way, a very small sliver of the world's population, Right, the U.S., Canada, a smattering of, of very small European countries and, and Western Europe. Only the we, in the Western culture are people becoming more secular. But even in the West, we see pockets of intensifying beliefs in the supernatural and spirituality, uh, hunger for religion. Asheville is a perfect example, isn't it? People are so hungry for spiritual connection to the divine. Now, so many times they're knocking on the wrong doors, they're barking up the wrong trees, they're looking in all the wrong places, but the hunger for spirituality, for something more than the physical world, is so present. It's almost palpable. You can feel it in places like Asheville. How can that be, friend, in a post-enlightenment world? I think uh, Blaise Pascal nails it when he says this. He says, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing but only by God the creator. Now, Paul says it like this in, in Romans chapter 1. This will be on the screens for you. Paul writes this. For his, that's God's, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse 
For although they knew God or they had knowledge of God, they did not honor him as God or give him give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul says, hey, hey guys, look, here's the thing. Deep down in the soul of every human being, there is a God-placed knowledge of the creator simply by observing the intricacy and the majesty of creation all around us. I was just last week sitting on my back uh, patio and there was this beautiful uh, black and yellow butterfly, huge, it just sort of almost in slow motion fluttered over my head, right? And so I got this bird's eye view of this thing as it was just kind of floating right as just beautiful, it was stunning. I had to go Google what it is. It was a, it's a yellow swallowtail butterfly, right? And I was just amazed. I was observing the intricacy of the design, like the pattern of the, the yellow and how it mixed with the black, right? It was absolutely exquisite. Random chance or an exquisite designer. A few years ago, I was, um, had the privilege of going on a mission trip to uh, the Andes Mountains. We were 11,000 feet above sea level in the Andes Mountains in, in, in Peru and Traveled all over the world, but I'd never been at an elevation uh, that, that high. And I remember the first night we were up in the mountains, it got dark, and, and, I, and I looked up in the sky, and it just took my breath away. If you've ever been up in the mountains that high, away from all light pollution, it was unbelievable. It was just a sheet of, of light. There was, more, there was more light than there was darkness in the sky. And I just had this moment of, of reflection, almost like this little little private worship moment, this worship service in my heart, just like, God, you are, you are so amazing. Like, you are so powerful and so big and, and so good, and every, you are everything that I am not. So amazed by, by creation and how anybody can look at the world and the design, the intricacy around us, and not come to the conclusion that there is an exquisite designer behind the design. I will never understand that. It reminds me of the words of, of King David who says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. You don't even have to have the Bible. The heavens themselves declare the glory of God. And David says the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So I want to circle back as we begin to land the plane to the questions that we started with this morning. Who is God? Who is God and what is he like? Answer? He's better than your wildest dreams. He's the loving father maybe you never had who is crazy about his kids. He is, he is the almighty one. He is El Shaddai, the unimaginably powerful one. He is the exquisite designer of all that is. And he is, guys, listen, he is intensely personal. And the best news of all, you have been created to know this God and to make him known. This is a God who is not only worthy of our worship, he is worthy of us giving our entire lives away to. I want to finish as, as the band comes by, by reading to you from Isaiah chapter 40. This is the great Old Testament prophet Isaiah writing. And he says this, 
Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord, trust in God, believe in him, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Friend, this is my God. This is your God. This is the one true God, and there is none like him. So I want to invite you now to stand with me. We're going to recite the Apostles' Creed, and then we're going to worship this great God. Now, if you're here in the room, you're not a follower of Jesus yet, don't feel in any way pressured or compelled to recite this with us. You can just kind of hang out and watch. But I want to encourage you, and if you're in here and you know this God, you've pledged your allegiance to Jesus, I want you to say this with me like you mean it. Almost shout it out. Are you ready? All right, let's go. One, two, three. I believe in God Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Christian Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Let's praise Him.